from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, thanks for tuning in. We are back from the Pray Vote Stand Summit that was in Atlanta, Georgia last week. If you missed it, I'm just going to say you really missed it. But but you can still watch some of the informative panel discussions on uh, a host of topics like national security, gender ideology, how parents are taking back our schools, and what to be watching for in the classrooms across America. And, of course, the list goes on and on. Go to TonyPerkins.com. And uh, you can watch the videos. By the way, I, I want to thank Dr. Anthony George, senior pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta. They hosted the event. They were amazing. So great to work with. Again, go to TonyPerkins.com and you can check out all, all of the sessions from this year's Pray Vote Stand Summit. So coming up on this Tuesday edition of Washington Watch, President Biden's 60 Minutes interview is closing in on 60 hours worth of criticism for statements like this. Well, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. Just an inch. I think uh, Americans are feeling a lot more than an inch. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell went to the floor today. And like many Americans, he's wondering where the political spin stops. Since President Biden took office, inflation has shot up a staggering 13.2 percent. For the average American household, this translates to hundreds and hundreds of extra dollars every month working overtime just to barely, barely tread water. And the president scared the fear mongers with this statement during the 60 Minutes interview. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. Well, if the pandemic is over... How are they going to scare Americans into giving up fundamental freedoms and allow the government to spend trillions of more tax dollars? Oh, we're going to discuss this and more with Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe, a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, in just a moment. And sanctuary city officials are still complaining about migrants showing up in their cities. Right now, my focus is on what's creating the crisis in New York City. And the crisis that's been created in New York City is coming from a governor who is fueling the crisis. <laughs> that was New York City Mayor Eric Adams complaining about the Texas governor who's been sending migrants to, to uh, New York. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis responded to the outrage by these sanctuary mayors. I haven't heard outrage about all the fentanyl that's come across the border that's killing Americans in record numbers. I don't hear... I don't hear outrage about the criminal aliens that have gotten through and have then victimized people, not only in Florida, but all throughout the country. I didn't hear any outrage about that. The only thing I hear them getting upset about is you have 50 that end up in Martha's Vineyard. Then they get really upset. We're going to talk about this with Sheriff Roy Boyd from Goliad County, Texas. He might have something to say about these humanitarian crises that the sanctuary cities are crying about. And on the life front, is abortion ever medically necessary to save the life of a mother? I mean, that's a big debate going on right now. Well, the answer is, well, stick around. Dr. Donna Harrison with the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists is here to share the answer. And last week, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health issued new guidelines for medical personnel. The new guidelines remove previously suggested minimal ages for transgender treatments and surgeries, leaving it wide open. 
Now, the abuse that such a policy could lead to is not speculative. Lawmakers in South Carolina announced yesterday that they're looking into reports that children as young as four years of age may have been involved in gender transition treatment at the Medical University of South Carolina. We're going to talk with Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who is the president of the American College of Pediatricians, later here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. It's all archived right there, as, long as, as well as lots of other resources for you. And I want to encourage you, if you've not yet visited the Washington Stand, go to WashingtonStand.org, where you'll be able to find news and commentary from a biblical perspective. Our word for today, coming from the Stand on the Word Bible reading plan, is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth, therefore let your words be few." Now, this sounds kind of like what my dad used to tell me, son, you have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. We should want to hear from the Lord, not show others how religious we are by what we say and pray. As Jesus taught in the Gospels, it was not the one who put on the religious show that was justified, but the one who humbled himself with just a few words, God be merciful to me. To join us in our Bible reading plan, go to TonyPerkins.com. All right, with the midterm elections approaching, we've seen President Biden and the Democrats attempt any number of tactics to distract voters from the issues affecting American families. Issues like rising crime, skyrocketing inflation, chaos at the border, and a catering stock market. But in a recent interview with 60 Minutes, the president appeared to indicate that the current level of inflation mm, is actually not a cause for concern. Play clip one. Well, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. Is the president out of touch with American families and what's really happening? The inflation we've experienced since he took office hurts Americans every time they go to the grocery store, gas up their car, or delay buying a home or even putting money into their retirement. Joining me now to discuss this and more is Congressman Greg Stubbe. He's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. Congressman Stubbe, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. So are, are your constituents, uh, I mean, they think in, inflation's just an inch higher, not, not, not a big deal? Uh, no, absolutely not. When they're going to the grocery store, when they're going to the supermarket, when they're going to Walmart, when they're going to the gas station or the gas pump. Uh, no, it's, it was 8.3, this past month, which is like the largest in 40 years. Uh, and he, he's trying to play off the numbers because it only increased incrementally from the inflationary numbers in July, which was like 8.1, 8.2%. And if you dive down, I read a Wall Street Journal article that was very, very um, illustrative to these points. If you drill down on some of these inflation numbers, like the base numbers are really, really bad. Um, groceries, right. eggs, uh, fuel, all these type of things that, that families rely upon. You're starting to now get warnings 
about fuel prices in the wintertime as people are going to start to use gas and natural gas to heat their home, that those prices are going to be significant and they're going to be paying more for their, their utilities at their, their home. So he's trying to downplay the crisis in America just like they've downplayed everything. You have their administration saying that the border is closed when, in fact, almost three million uh, illegals have been apprehended at the southern border. The Inflation Reduction Act, the president points to that saying, hey, look, we're addressing the issue of inflation, but how can spending $700 billion more dollars, not to mention the potential trillion that comes from the erasure of student debt, I mean, how can that in any form or fashion fight inflation when it's putting more money into the economy? Yeah, any basic economist will tell you, you put more money into the economy, you're going to see inflation. And that is why we are where we are. The Democrats can't help themselves but spend. I've only been in Congress for almost four years. When I first got elected, the, the deficit was at $21 trillion. We're almost at $31 trillion in four years. Biden's first bill was a $1.9 trillion spending bill. Then you had the infrastructure package was another $1.2 trillion. And this Inflation Reduction Act did nothing but reduce inflation and dropped another $800 billion on an already inflationary economy. And even their own Democratic advisors, like advisors to uh, President Obama, was saying this is going to increase inflation. And in that act was over $500 billion in Green New Deal type programs, not doing things to help average American citizens. It was to allow rich people to go and buy Teslas and get uh, solar panels and all of these different things that the average American is not doing because they are living paycheck to paycheck right now, trying to figure out how they're going to be able to put food on the table and pay for medicine and pay for gas all at the same time, because the increase of that has been substantial just since Joe Biden's been president. Uh, Congressman Subi, let's uh, shift gears to another topic discussed in this 60 Minutes interview. The, as, as the president was talking about uh, inflation, he was also asked the question about the pandemic. He announced that the pandemic was over. Now, a lot of the spending that is being proposed and being advanced by Democrats is based upon this emergency of having to spend. In fact, the justification for the student loan debt uh, forgiveness, which again is uh, upwards of some some say a trillion dollars, that's all predicated upon this emergency. Yeah, it just goes to show you that they, they really don't believe the things that they're saying. Um, they're they're going to say that the that they're doing all these programs. Like we still have these protocols on the House floor as we sit here today. Democrats can proxy vote on the House floor because COVID is still a pandemic. Yet the president himself said it's not. Um, you have all of these differing opinions within their own party as to what it is because they want to use that as a basis to spend more money. And as you said, that was a justification to spend almost a trillion dollars of taxpayer dollars to help young Americans who recently graduated from college. Again, these are not the majority of Americans because the majority of Americans don't have a college degree and uh, aren't young and just recently graduated from college to pay off their student loans. It's spending and it's spending and it's spending and it's using the, our tax dollars to try to pay off individuals in the, with the midterms coming up in the hopes that these individuals will vote for them and not flip the house. Speaking of elections, um, we've got the midterm elections coming up and control of the United States Congress, you know, is uh, hanging in the balance. If the Republicans do retake 
control of the House of Representatives. What do you see as the focus when it comes to working American families by the Republicans? What will they do to address some of these issues? Yeah, and if you look at recent polling on the issues, what do Americans care the most about? Number one is the economy. Who do they trust those people to be able to govern on those issues of the economy? It's Republicans. On crime, it's Republicans. On national defense, it's Republicans. So the issues that Americans care about are issues that they believe Republicans are best suited to handle. We only have to win five seats to take the House back, and I believe we do that. And this week, we're issuing a commitment to America that lays out our entire plan to the American people. You elect us to, to take care of the House and run the House of Representatives. And these are the things that we're going to do from crime to inflation to spending to defense. You name it. It's all laid out in the commitment to America. And uh, it should be released this week uh, if it hasn't been already. And the American people can Google that and go and see all the different things that we are working on. Yeah, the plan is, I think, it will be released uh, on uh, Friday morning. In fact, I was up on the Hill this morning meeting with uh, Republican leadership just to kind of look over the uh, kind of the generalities of the of the plan going forward. And um, so they are going to address a lot of these issues. And I think there is going to be a clear contrast between the two parties, their priorities. Of course, you can always look at the two party platforms. Nothing provides a clearer contrast between the two than those party platforms. Uh, Congressman Stubbe, up against a break. Uh, I know you're going to stick around because on the other side of this break, I want to talk about Another topic that came up with the president, that was Taiwan and what America may do if China invades Taiwan. We're going to look at that on the other side of this break. And by the way, you can look at the contrast between the two political parties when it comes to those platforms. We've got that resource available for you at frcaction.org under voter resources. In fact, there's voter guides. You need to start getting informed now for these midterm elections. All the primaries are over. We're now going into the midterm elections. You need to be registered. You need to be telling your friends about it and registering your friends. It is a critical election. All right, don't go away. We're back with more after this break. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us. As I mentioned, uh, we were in Atlanta last week for the Pray Vote Stand Summit. Well, we're going back to uh, the Atlanta area for the Stand Courageous Men's Conference. If you're in the area, October the 8th, we'll have our Georgia Stand Stand Courageous Men's Conference. It will be at North Metro Baptist Church in Lawrenceville, Georgia, just right outside of Atlanta. That's Saturday, October the 8th. Uh, Pastor Gary Hamrick, Pastor Frank Cox, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, Larry Jackson, myself, uh, Stu Weber from Promise Keepers. That, again, October 8th, that's a Saturday, all day. To find out more, go to TonyPerkins.com or StandCourageous.com. All right, we're continuing our conversation uh, with Congressman uh, Greg Stubbe. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. Uh, Greg, thanks for sticking around. Uh, Of course. Before the break, we were discussing uh, President Biden's comments on 60 Minutes regarding inflation and the pandemic. But he was also asked about Taiwan. I want to play this clip and get your reaction. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces... U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. But it appears the White House is once again walking back the president's statement uh, saying our policy on Taiwan has not changed. So what are we doing as it pertains to Taiwan? Yeah, the White House has to constantly walk back Joe Biden's statements because they don't connect with what the Democrats want as talking points, like the pandemic is over and we're going to defend Taiwan. Um, Last time I checked, you need a congressional approval to declare war. He has the ability to respond as president to certain things. But I think he's made his his position pretty clear that they would try to defend Taiwan if, in fact, China was going to engage Taiwan in any kind of hostilities. I don't believe, certainly from the people I've talked to in my district, I don't believe the American people support military action, boots on the ground, 
around military service members engaging in Taiwan in defense of an island nation against a much more formidable military force, the Chinese Communist Party, in the Pacific realm, when you have war going on in Eastern Europe at this time, where we're divulging significant assets to the Ukrainians, a total of $40 billion, $15 billion of which was security assistance. Uh, Secretary Blinken just recently issued, made public all the list of weapons that we have transferred there. So to be engaged on two different fronts and two different hemispheres, I think would be very challenging for a military uh, that would be spread out. Well, also, it would be a huge challenge given the state of our military. Are you not concerned with the the state of readiness of our military? I mean, they're having a difficult time just meeting their recruitment uh, goals. And that's not surprising when you're forcing vaccines on people that don't want it. I've got a constituent right now who's in an academy and they're telling her they won't even give her a degree after four years of going through the academy because she's refusing to take the vaccine. These are the type of things that aren't uh, certainly bringing that Americanism that we need for our service members to volunteer. I certainly would have hesitation to serve under a military commanded by Joe Biden when you've seen what happened in Afghanistan, where to this day, we still have American citizens left behind enemy lines, where we gave up $83 billion worth of military equipment to a globally recognized terrorist organization. I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians would have loved to have that $83 billion worth of military weapons, ammunition, and equipment in Ukraine right now to defend against the Russians. Such decisions like that impact the decisions of our young people to want to serve. And so we're facing recruitment woes. We're facing, they care more about the pronouns and army regulations, and they care more about gender identity politics in our military than they do about the national defense of our country. I want to go back, uh, Greg, something you said about, because uh, I've gotten the same calls from individuals who are either being discharged from the Guard or other branches of the service because they have not gotten the vaccine. Now that the president has declared that the pandemic is over, not to mention that we have lots of information now saying that the vaccine was ineffective, actually the shot, it's not a vaccine, uh, was ineffective, and even we're now beginning to see more and more health issues related to it. Are you and some of your colleagues jumping on this to defend uh, those members of the military? We have. We've sent letter after letter, and that's why it is so important that we take the House back, because we don't have the ability to do things like subpoena records, to make demands, to pass bills when we're in the minority. Uh, Thankfully, there's been a recent uh, federal district court decision, I believe it was in Florida, uh, related to a a Marine as it related to the vaccine. And the Marine Corps have very quietly pulled back the religious exemptions uh, and allowed for the approval of religious exemptions on the vaccine. Hopefully that goes through all the other branches, but it's taking court action to get to the point where we need to be because this administration and this DOD ignores Republican calls to not force people to take an experimental vaccine. And if they have religious objections to that, which our constitution absolutely supports, they're still being forced and uh, to either take it or then being pushed out. And that is why we are facing record recruitment woes. There was like 10,000 National Guard members who were being released from service. We are not in a situation where we're able to take on the threats that face America right now because of the decisions this administration has made. Right. In fact, uh, we were discussing, uh, I wasn't, but Joseph Backholm was in for me yesterday talking about the Navy 
uh, has also had uh, court cases which uh, sailors have won on the religious exip- li- uh, religious exemption provisions. But I'm wondering if Republicans take control of the House, if they'll be able to take action for all of those who were discharged wrongfully for not taking the vaccine. Any chance that those uh, wrongs could be righted? Absolutely. And the way that we do that is through the appropriations process, because the House controls the purse strings. You put one sentence rider on the Department of Defense budget, um, the allocation to our military and say that not a single dollar of this fund shall be allowed to allow a service member to not use a religious exemption to refuse the vaccine. And that all these individuals who have been released have the opportunity to come back into the service if they want to. We can accomplish these policy objectives through the appropriations process, because as I'm sure you're aware, Joe Biden's likely not going to sign bills that Republican House and Senate passed, but he he has to pass the budget, and we have the authority in the House strings in the the budget, and those are the type of things we can accomplish through the budget process. All right. Uh, Congressman Greg Stubbe, always great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Tony. All right. Congressman Greg Stubbe of the 17th Congressional District of Florida. All right. This lots on the line in this election. Well, coming up next here on Washington Watch, sanctuary city officials are complaining that border states that are sending migrants to their cities are engaging in inhumane political stunts. I find that interesting. What would they call declaring a city in the middle of the country, a sanctuary city that people have to travel thousands of miles to get to? I would call it an inhumane political stunt. We're going to talk with the sheriff from Texas next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. As Congressman Stubbe uh, mentioned, for the first time, more than 2 million migrants were arrested at the southern border in a single year. That's 2 million. Now, that's not the ones that got through. That's just the ones that were arrested. When Governors Abbott and DeSantis sent a fraction of the number of migrants pouring across our border to northern sanctuary cities. Mayors in those cities declared the situation a humanitarian crisis. But what about officials in cities closer to the border who face this every day and have been facing it for years? Joining me now to discuss this is Sheriff Roy Boyd. He is the sheriff of Goliad County in Texas. Sheriff Boyd, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me, Tony. So, Sheriff, the mayors of Chicago, New York, and here in Washington, D.C., uh, have referred to a few busloads of uh, people as a humanitarian crisis, calling out the National Guard, demanding the federal government do more. And these are all cities who declared themselves to be sanctuary cities. But when people showed up, it became a crisis. Compare that to what you face every day. Well, when you come down to South Texas, one of the things you have to realize is that the Border Patrol encounters over 100,000 illegal aliens crossing into the United States, just into Texas, every month. And so you, and then you understand that Border Patrol, according to their own people on the streets, only encounter what they estimate to be 8 to 15 percent of the people that actually illegally cross into the United States. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sheriff, I want you to repeat that again. Yes, sir. No, in Texas, Border Patrol encounters over 100,000 illegal aliens entering into Texas from Mexico every month. And according to Border Patrol, I'm talking to the people at the ground level, they only encounter approximately 8 to 15 percent of those who make it across. So all the others are getting across without being interdicted. That is correct. That's a, that's a flood of people. That's it. That's what you actually you've referred to the situation as an invasion. It is an invasion. But what it is, it's, it's an invasion that's being brought on by transnational criminal organizations in Mexico that are bringing a peon class of slaves into the United States. This is an epic battle of good versus evil because we have a government that is actually promoting the movement of slaves from one country to another. And they're bringing them here, and these people are being put into indentured servitude in the United States. I mean, this is good versus evil, and it's what's taking place here every single day. As a sheriff, we've encountered people here at the sheriff's office who thought they were coming to the United States to be reunited with their families, only to find that they were going to be placed into bondage in unspeakable you know, situations here in the United States. This should not be happening. So, so Sheriff, there's related to this drugs, uh, newly released data from Customs and Border Protection. Enough fentanyl was seized at the border in August, just in August, for more than 500 million lethal doses. Fentanyl-driven overdose fatalities are now are now the leading cause of death for people aged 18 to 45 years of age. That sounds like a humanitarian crisis. It is, but at the same time, our government is promoting the legalization of drugs. States are promoting the legalization of drugs. The federal government is. 
So they're really just aiding and abetting the transnational criminal organizations that are flooding the market with these drugs. And the organizations that bring the slaves are the exact same organizations that bring the drugs. And so it's all one big problem. It's a symptom of a sickness. We have to cure it. The problem is we've lost our way. We've turned our back on God, and we're no longer following what the blessings would be under Deuteronomy 28. We've gone on to the curses. And we're, I think that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the misery we're going to face as a result of the fact that we've lost our way. And just like the Israelites in the past, we've turned our back on God and we're going to reap what we've sowed. Uh, Sheriff, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I appreciate you bringing that up. I was just discussing that with my team today. As, as many Republicans talk about the, the, the drugs coming into the country, that's the supply you talk about the demand, and that's really at the heart of the matter, is what is driving this demand for drugs? Yes, there's an incentive on behalf of the policies of this country to bring those drugs in, but there's also that, that void that's in the heart of so many people because we've pushed God out of our public discussion and dialogue today. You're right. God is, God is what fills that void. God is the reason we are here, and we're here to glorify him and do what he has sent us here to do. The problem is we've turned our backs and we forgot. We think of ourselves as being superior beings, when in reality we are not. We are just here to serve. But the unfortunate part is, just like it says in the book of Isaiah, you know, woe to those who call good evil and those who call evil good. And unfortunately, we find ourselves in a time when much of our society has turned everything backwards, including our government as it pushes to push this, this agenda on us and to dumb us down and to drag us farther and farther into this pit that is going to be an abyss that our country will not be able to come back from if we don't turn back towards the Lord. You're absolutely right. Uh, Sheriff Boyd, I want to thank you for joining us today and uh, thank you for uh, your service to our, to our country and to your state of Texas. Well, one thing about it, I don't want to be lukewarm because who wants to be spit out by the Spirit of the Lord? You're absolutely right. I'm with you, Sheriff. All right. Thanks for being with us. I'll tell you what, you might want to move to uh, Goliad County, Texas. All right. Coming up, we're going to discuss why the abortion industry relies on bad definitions and faulty rhetoric to push abortion on demand. Is abortion ever medically necessary to save the life of a mother? We're going to talk about that next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. 
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Sports fans might remember the praying tailback, Herb Lusk, who played for the Philadelphia Eagles. I think he was the first uh, that would kneel and pray in the end zone after scoring a touchdown. Herb left professional football after only three very successful seasons, but he left to enter the ministry. He became the pastor of Greater Exodus Baptist Church in downtown Philadelphia, where he and his church really actually led an effort to revitalize the blighted downtown area. They started after-school programs for kids, a computer lab, a bank, among uh, many other projects to aid the community. I not uh, only had the privilege of preaching at Herb's church, I got to work with him on a number of issues, including a Justice Sunday event where we had this huge simulcast at his church, but I also joined him for the very first fundraiser for the only care pregnancy center in the city, which he started. And unfortunately, last night I was informed that he crossed the goal line into eternity, and no doubt I'm sure he knelt once again. Pastor Herb Lux, Lusk was unafraid to stand for truth. He was a tremendous leader and a great friend, and he will be dearly missed. Well, since the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the abortion industry has worked overtime to distort the medical definition of abortion. They do this by blurring the lines between the intentional killing of a child in an abortion and the tragic unintended death of a child in a miscarriage or a ectopic uh, pregnancy. The reality is that abortion is never medically necessary to save the life of a mother. 
Such fears are a relic of medical conditions from 50 years ago. Join me now to discuss this and more is Dr. Donna Harrison, a board-certified OBGYN who is presently CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Harrison, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much, Tony, for having me on. So, Dr. Harrison, I wanted to, uh, I stated in the open, but I, I want to be very clear about this and let you answer the question, because this is something that is being used right now in this debate that, oh, you're going to take away the ability to save the life of a mother if, a, if they can't get an abortion. Um, is it ever medically necessary to do an abortion to save the life of a mother? Well, you know, the pro-abortion, the, the simple answer is no. The pro-abortion industry equivocates on the term abortion. Yes, there's about 16 different medical definitions of the word abortion, but most people understand when we use the term abortion, we mean an elective abortion. That is a procedure done for the purpose of producing a dead baby. That is the purpose that you pay the abortionist for. And the reason we can say that is from testimony uh, by abortionists at the uh, partial birth abortion hearings before the Supreme Court. The court asked the abortionists, if you have the baby delivered to the point where the only thing inside the mom is the head, why don't you just complete the delivery? And the answer is because we're paid to produce a dead baby, we're not doing birth. So it's very clear when we use the term abortion in this context, what we mean is a procedure done specifically to produce a dead baby for no medical indication. So when we have to separate a mom and a baby to save the mom's life, we do that. And most of those life-saving situations or life-threatening situations actually happen after the time the baby's able to survive outside. So we do a C-section. We can deliver a baby in 10 minutes if we have to as OBGYNs. We don't have to go in and intentionally destroy that baby's life. And from an ethical, from an from a ethics standpoint, the, the mother is the first patient. And so you are, if you're, if you're seeking to save the life of the mother and something happens with the child, um, that is not an abortion. That is, uh, as you said, that's not the intentional taking of a life. But the abortion industry wants to blur the line to suggest that, a mother is just simply helpless because you're not going to do anything to help her because you cannot threaten the life of that baby. And see, that is so ridiculous because 85 to 93 percent of OBGYNs do not do abortion in their private practice. That's been shown by several studies over the last 10 years. We give excellent care. We take care of ectopic pregnancies. We treat miscarriages. We just simply don't go in and intentionally kill a preborn human being. So, that has, that's been going on since Roe versus Wade. Most of us do not do abortions. And to even emphasize that even more, the Catholic healthcare system in this country is responsible for uh, about 20% of the healthcare in this country. They have excellent treatment for ectopic pregnancies and for miscarriages. There's never been an issue of not saving a mother's life. The abortion industry wants to play this on because they don't want to talk about what an abortion really is, and that's a procedure designed specifically to, to end the life of that preborn human being. Uh, one, one final question for you, Dr. Harrison. You, you touched on this, but just to be clear so our, our, our viewers and listeners know this, the, the issue of ectopic pregnancies has been brought up that, oh, well, you can't save the life of a mother because that would be 
an abortion. Treating an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion, is it? Treating an ectopic pregnancy has nothing to do with an abortion. And even Planned Parenthood admitted that on their website until this whole debate came up and they pulled that, that down from their website. An ectopic pregnancy is where the baby has planted outside the womb and there is no chance that that baby can survive to, to, to be able to survive a separation. So in order to save that mother's life, we do have to separate the mom and the baby, but that's way different than going in to intentionally destroy the life of a preborn human being. If we could save that baby, we would, but at the current state of technology, we can't save babies that are ectopic. Dr. Harrison, I want to thank you for joining us today. I always appreciate your insight and input in these important discussions. Thank you very much. Folks, and I encourage you, we have some resources uh, available at uh, the Family Research Council to discuss these issues because these are conversations that are people, people are having. And by the way, this is a part of building the culture of life post-DOPS. People are, I mean, you see it. I mean, this is this debate raging. It's still in the political realm. But there's also conversations that people are having. And pastors need to have these conversations. We have lots of resources for you. In fact, uh, one of the reasons I did this interview is because one of the articles from Washington Stand addressing this issue has gotten a lot of attention because we're taking on this claim that a uh, abortion is never necessary to save the life of a mother. And so, in fact, even some of the social media platforms were tagging us saying, you know, we were spreading misinformation, but we're pushing back. And, uh, of course, this is part of it. All right, moving along, a research report at the Medical University of South Carolina's Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic indicates that children as young as four visited the clinic for transgender consultations. Now, as you might guess, this is a problem for some. Legislators in South Carolina were shocked that children so young might receive so-called gender treatment and announced an investigation into the hospital's practices. Now, current law in South Carolina prohibits the hospital from using state money to fund or support the gender transition of minors under the age of 16. And it should be noted that the hospital denied that such treatments are occurring. But as we see this expand, more and more of this is occurring. Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Quentin Van Meter. He's a pediatric endocrinologist and president of the American College of Pediatricians. Dr. Van Meter, welcome back to Washington Watch. Tony, always glad to be on your show. Uh, does this report surprise you? No, this is what's happening at almost all the university-based uh, transgender clinics, is that children are being brought in at uh, young ages, as young as four, uh, sometimes even younger in Southern California. And the transition that's happening uh, is, is at, the, at that point in time, at that young age, not a medical transition or a surgical transition, but a social transition. Uh, that sounds benign, like something reversible. But Dr. Kenneth Zucker, who was really a world's expert on the whole concept of uh, incongruent gender, has, has soundly stated in his clinical studies and researches and, and, and published papers that a social transition is a disruptive event in the life of the child. It's opening a Pandora's box. 
uh, essentially stating that the child is a, a gender that's not congruent with the biologic sex determined at the moment of conception. And so that child is forever torn asunder from within the family fabric, uh, not only within the internal family, but in the social uh, milieu around school and friends and you know, families of, uh, of, of the child's friends who are essentially having to deal with the fact that out of the out of the blue in some cases this child is no longer the sex that they thought the child was or this is not pretending to be the sex and is choosing a different sex to emulate or appear to be uh and that is you know they, they look at it as to a total reversible concept but it, in truth it is not it's very hard to put things back in a box once you've torn that that box open. Um, at South Carolina, like most of the U.S. Uh, centers for transgender uh, affirmation, uh, they are waiting until the onset of puberty, whenever that happens to naturally occur, to begin to use medical interventions, such as pu puberty blockers, and then very quickly after that, uh, introducing cross-sex hormones. We know that the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones have do irreparable damage. Uh, there is more and more literature being published about the effects on the adolescent brain that are uh, we're you know now learning are very very important and and not reversible. Uh, Dr. Michael Biggs from Oxford University has just written a scathing uh, article about the use of puberty blockers in uh, in transgender adolescents and and young children just starting puberty, really pointing out the fact that there is absolutely no scientific evidence that it is safe for the adolescent brain to be exposed to these medications. So I think with the comeback from University of South Carolina was, no, we don't, we're not transitioning small children. You know, we're waiting until they're pubertal, of course, and, and if the age of consent. And, and the thing is that, no, they're really but they're, talking about social transition. But they're putting them in the pipeline. They're putting it in that pipeline. I call it a conveyor belt. Okay, it really is. It's a hard place to get out from once you're on that that track. Uh, the concept that puberty blockers are a pause, where it, it's it's kind of like the the reset pause of Hillary Clinton with Russia. It, you know, it's, it's it's actually a fake situation. They're using that as a reason to start the drug, and then in the clinics in the United States very rapidly, those kids are placed on the cross-sex hormones uh, so that they can, quote, enjoy puberty uh, at an age match time with their with their peers. All right. So, Dr. Van Meter, you put a lot out there. We could uh, talk about that all, all day. But I, there's a couple of pieces I want to I want to break down just a little bit. I mean, we're talking about children. You said could be younger than four years old, but we have four-year-olds that are being brought in. At four years old, I mean, you don't even know your ABCs, so how do you know the, the, about the birds and the bees? I mean, this is mostly going to be, is it not going to be environmental factors that are going to shape a kid to, to, to maybe do something, pick up a doll as opposed to a, a gun, and uh, you know, a toy gun, and so they're going to say, oh, he, he, he's a girl, and put him on this, as you say, a conveyor belt? Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a situation that is untenable for a child to be able to understand the depth and the breadth of what that means. Um, you know, a child lives in a sort of a fantasy world, and 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 the thing that that scares them is when the line between reality and fantasy cannot be established, and that's where anxiety essentially uh, pops in, and the mental health of that child is adversely affected when they really can't determine what's real and what's not real. Right. And that is a very scary situation. But as you described, so this is just, it's not 
it's not the drugs, and it's certainly not the surgeries at four years old, but they get on this conveyor belt, and now we have policies being passed in some states that says, look, you can't counsel that child about their gender dysphoria to move them back off that conveyor belt. I mean, you're essentially locking these children in for something that they acted out or thought about or may have... I mean, how in the world can a four-year-old know what they want to be when they're 18 years old in terms of their gender. It's absolutely an impossible thought. They can't even think about what gender really means, about uh, reproduction, about family, about the purpose of, you know, of of their future life beyond the the tip of their nose. I mean, they live or, you know, their favorite, are we there yet? I mean, that's every five minutes. So it's just... It's this is criminal. It is. It is. Uh, it is. It is really just hard to wrap your head around the fact that anybody would even consider doing this. Now, uh, very quickly, we're almost out of time. But the World Professional Association of Transgender Health published new guidelines, and apparently, in this new guidelines, they've removed the basically the minimum age requirement. So now it's, is it, is it the wild, wild west when it comes to these transgender treatments for medical professionals? You know, the fact that they removed these was somewhat undercover. No one expected it. It was just sort of represented as a modified version with no explanation whatsoever about why that was done. Uh, That leaves speculation wide open to say that I guess uh, anybody at any age No one has really answered that question, and I think that until that question is really, you know, and concretely outlined what it means, uh, what did they mean when they when they removed the age limits? uh, I think those those uh, guidelines have to be held in abeyance and and just put on a shelf and reconsidered. Dr. Quentin Van Meter, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks, Tony. I tell you, this stuff is alarming, and and what is so bad about it? is that, as he just described, once they get on this conveyor belt or in this pipeline, yeah, first it's just, uh, you know, it's just this counseling um, to affirm. But it's all gender affirming, okay? So it's affirming what this four-year-old, what they think this four-year-old wants. And that leads to the, the drugs, the hormone treatments, which then leads to the surgeries. And you can't touch them in the process. You can't counsel them. This is, it's criminal. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.